with spirited singing like that, no wonder we uh, can appreciate how much the desire is in our heart to magnify, glorify, and exalt the name of our God of heaven. It truly is a magnificent thing that God has blessed us with voice and with the mental judgment and capacity to lift those voices in a way, in a communal fashion, collectively, so that He is honored and praised and glorified. It's always a delightful thing when brothers and sisters in Christ can come together like we are this evening to not only study the Word of God, but be encouraged in prayer and in song. And so it is tonight that we continue our series of studies on the book of 1 Samuel. It is to that book that I would direct your attention for the next few moments, as I would continuing to remind us that our youngsters are continuing their preparation for the Bible Bowl, and all of us who are their parents and all just members of the congregation, as we also encourage them by studying from this same precious Old Testament book. The book of 1 Samuel, as it's nestled in the historical books of the Old Testament, is a book that, of course, reminds us of just a few of the things I've listed on this slide. To this point, we already have studied nine chapters of this book. And as we've studied them, we've been reminded, first of all, of the calling of Samuel, his predecessor Eli, the wickedness of Eli's sons, the nature of their losing of the Ark of the Covenant in the tremendous battle of chapter number 4. But we've also noticed the Ark has been returned. Amazingly, the people, however, have requested a king. In fact, they even have gone so far as to demand one. Their suggestion from the depths of their being was that they wanted to be like the nations round about them. Jonathan just mentioned in prayer the danger that came their way because of that desire. We did notice, though, in the very last lesson, the one last Sunday evening, that not only had God heard that particular request on their behalf, He also was going to grant that request, but He was going to select the first king that they would have. Tonight, as we continue our study in chapters 10 and 11, we'll find that not only did God select that one that would be their king, but also that He was presented in a way that the people ratified that and anointed Him to be their first king of Israel. I would invite you for the next few moments to enter into a consideration of chapters 10 and 11 of 1 Samuel as we look more in careful character about the selection of Saul and his appointment as the first king of Israel. As you can see on this next slide, the one that we shall commence at this time, historically we find a very intriguing set of circumstances that surrounded the appointment of Saul. First of all, as chapter 10 begins, we left the scene last Sunday evening in a somewhat interesting situation. Saul had come to the particular place. He was searching for his father's lost donkeys. And as he arrived at the particular place where the man of God, Samuel, was, we noticed that Samuel had invited him to participate in a sacrificial feast with him. And it was already noted that there was a very special message for Saul. As that chapter ended, we couldn't help but wonder the details of that message. And as chapter 10 opens, that message is now revealed unto Saul. In fact, Samuel takes a vial of oil and breaks it or anoints the head of Samuel with it. And not only that, he kisses him and informs him that there was to be a special set of circumstances surrounding the events that for you and me would be in chapter 10. These events read as follows. Samuel told Saul that when you depart from me this day and you come to Rachel's tomb in the territory of Zelzah, that is to say in the region of Benjamin, you will there meet two men. 
As you discuss with them, they will inform you that those donkeys that you have been seeking have in fact been found. And furthermore, they will now inform you that your father is now concerned about you, for you have been gone for so long. Upon leaving this location and leaving this conversation with them, when you come to the terebinth at Tabor, you will meet three men. One of them will have in his possession, that is to say, he will be carrying three young goats. Furthermore, another of them will be carrying three loaves of bread, and another one will be carrying a bottle of wine. As you converse with them, they will give you two of those loaves of bread. And as you depart from that place, you will come to the hill on which the Philistines are themselves positioned. And when you come and you ascend that hill, you will then recognize the great message of God because the Spirit of God will come upon you, Saul, and you will prophesy along with the prophets. When that happens, Saul, you recognize these are a sign from God. All of these in succession are pointing to the fact that you have been the selected one to be the captain over God's people. You will be their first king, and as such, you need to appreciate the Lord is with you. All of those signs were to carry a message that Saul was not to overlook, a message that the God of heaven was to be with him. As those events transpired, and we did find, they came to pass exactly as Samuel had foretold them. And when all of them came to pass, Saul did learn the valiant lesson. As you can see near the bottom of that slide, those events did transpire. All those places that Saul visited. Beyond that, we notice the next set of events did transpire as well. In particular, Saul had a conversation with his uncle. And in that course of that conversation, his uncle asked, Where have you been? And Saul was quick to reply, beginning in verse 17 of 1 Samuel 10. He told him he had been looking for the donkeys, the ones that were lost, as a product or as a concourse of that discussion. He said, We had a conversation with Samuel. Saul's uncle asked him, What did Samuel tell you? At that time, Saul simply told him, he told us where the donkeys were, but he did not share with him the other features about himself being king. That's an interesting reflection, and it does lead us to notice the way in which chapter 10 closes. As you'll notice, beginning in verse number 17, Samuel called the people together at the city of Mizpah. And as he did so, he in fact made note that they had requested a king. As they requested a king... Samuel was quick to point out to them that you've rejected God. In the selection and the request of a king, you have rejected the God of heaven. Jehovah, Yahweh, you have not in fact accepted Him in the way that you ought, and God has heard your request for a king and He's granted it. And on that occasion, you'll notice that one by one, the particular tribes were selected. And of that group, the tribe of Benjamin was selected. The family of Matri was selected out of the tribe of Benjamin, and then, lo and behold, the one that was to be chosen, the one that was the selected one to be the next king, he was not there. When they began to inquire as to where Saul was, turns out he was with the stuff, as the King James Version reads it. He was with the equipment, as the New King James reads it. Here was the very one who was the next chosen leader, and yet he was humble enough and he was unpretentious enough not to even have his rightful place at that time. He was still back taking care of the equipment. When he was brought, 
Samuel said, this is the one who is the next king. He is the one that God has selected and chosen to represent Israel. He is the one that shall be your king. As the verses succeeded in following chapter number 10, that was the lesson text that Brother Lucas read for us tonight. I invite you to read again the way that that was presented to you and me. And they ran, verse 23 tells us, and fetched him thence, and when he stood among the people, he was higher than any of the people from his shoulders and upward. And Samuel said to all the people, See ye him whom the Lord hath chosen, that there is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted and said, God, save the king. They had gotten the request. Saul was selected, anointed here as the one that would be king. You'll notice in verse 26 that Saul went to his hometown of Gibeah, and there he remained until chapter 11 opens. We notice in this next chapter some other interesting events come before us. In particular, things were not well for the city in the region of Jabesh. Jabesh was a little region on what you and I would recognize as the eastern side of the Jordan River. It was located in the area of Gilead, and we notice that something very terrible began to happen to them. The Ammonites, one of the leaders of that group named Nahash, he came and in fact directly confronted the city of Jabesh, and it was to them that he said, as he came up against it, they, in response, desired to make peace. The city of Jabesh desired that things not be such that they had to fight against the Ammonites. As the verses proceed, we learn this interesting lesson. This Nahash was so confident of his ability to defeat them. He was so certain of his ability to, in fact, overwhelm them. He said, in fact, that this is what I shall set before you as the terms of peace, the terms of a covenant. First, I will put out all the right eyes of the men of the city. And secondly, I will bring reproach upon the entirety of the number. They would be left, of course, in a very dire set of circumstances indeed without the right eyes. And certainly the reproach and the insult that would, bring, that would be brought to them. The people responded this way, give us seven days. Seven days to make decisions, seven days to confirm the, decree, the, de the decision of our lot. During that period of seven days, they sent messengers throughout Israel, trying to learn as to whether or not they would be able to fight successfully and to be able to learn whether they would be able to hold their own against these Ammonites and against Nahash. Word, you see, was then brought to the various and sundry cities of the area. We do learn in verses 5 and following that word of this circumstance came even to Gibeah, where Saul was. Saul was located, or rather Gibeah was located about 40 miles from Jabesh. That would be 40 miles as the crow would fly, of course. For one was on one side of the Jordan River and one was on the other. But we learn that when word did come to the city of Gibeah, Saul first was out in the field taking care of matters in that place. But when the people heard of what Jabesh was facing, they were overwhelmed with sorrow and overwhelmed with concern. How shall we fight against the Ammonites? When Saul came in from the field, he also heard this because he noticed the people weeping. And when he asked what was the problem, they quickly informed him. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Saul. 
When it did, he made a decision. And in fact, he took a yoke of oxen, hewed it to pieces, and sent it all throughout Israel. And as he did that, the message was this, The same thing will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not come in defense. And in response to Samuel and to Saul, sure enough, the men turned out in dramatic number. 30,000 were gathered. We notice that of that number, 30,000 from Judah, some 300,000 from all of Israel. Word was then sent to Jabesh that all will be well and we will fight for the city. In the last few verses of 1 Samuel 11, the people in fact did fight. The Ammonites were defeated. And as they were defeated, Saul was now lifted up and accepted by the people as in fact the king. In marvelous record, we find then in verses 14 and 15, at the place of Gilgal, we have an official final appointment on the part of Samuel of Saul as king. The people had accepted him. God had selected him. And now we find even Samuel officially ratifying and anointing the decision the people had made. As he is the first king, we come then to notice that the final set of notes on that slide conclude chapter number 11. But with it, what an interesting set of events have now come before us. With them, what have we seen and what might be some things you and I can use to help us in our service to God even today? Perhaps just a few of them might be these. I would ask you to reflect on what we saw as chapter 10 opened. First of all, it was this one. There was a rather unusual set of events that began chapter number 10. Recall that when Samuel and Saul departed from each other, Samuel had told Saul very carefully about meeting some people at Zelzah, meeting some others on the way at the Terebinth and Tabor, and finally even the discussion of what would happen as he ascended the hill going into Bethel. All the while, those things probably would have happened in any number of circumstances similarly. Even today, there are times that you and I encounter individuals and even circumstances that seem so ordinary. Even tomorrow, you and I may speak with someone. We may, in fact, meet someone and carry on a conversation with them, and they may give us a gift, or they may inform us of something that has been weighing upon their mind. Any number of events, you and I might reflect, all those events had a meaning in Saul's life. They were all a sign from God. And they were all a remembrance of the fact that God was in control of all those features and factors. When they came to pass, again, the message that Saul was to learn was this. When these things come to pass, it wasn't if they would. When they would, you recognize the Lord is with you and that, in fact, you are the first king. I wonder, do we sometimes see the handiwork of God among the events that otherwise may be ordinary, but that nonetheless transpire in our life. Are individuals, in fact, such that tomorrow you and I may meet them and we may have the possibility of impacting them in a way that never again will take place in our life. Never again will we meet that same individual and in the same mindset we will tomorrow. Never again shall we encounter them Tuesday and in the same productive way that we shall meet them then. It does make one wonder, doesn't it? There seem to be a number of passages in Scripture that point us to the fact that this is not just wonderment. There really is apparently something to it. Here Saul met these individuals. 
the two men at Zelza, the three at the Terebinth and Tabor, the several meeting them as he would, they're going into Bethel. And all the while, one by one, it was a stack of evidence that the God of heaven is in control of the affairs of this life, even the ones that may be ordinary, and even the ones that may be far less than extraordinary. In fact, look at the way some of the points in the Bible help us appreciate how powerful our God truly is. We're told in Daniel 4, verses 18 and 25 as well, that is it not He that rules in the kingdoms of men? And as often as we've reflected upon God's existence amongst the nations, the controlling power that He has, the way in which the affairs of people can work out to His glory, that was true in the book of Daniel, wasn't it? One by one, the kingdoms of men would rise and fall. Babylon was enjoying her greatness at that time, but there would be another kingdom to arise after her. After that, the Medo-Persian Empire would rise and they too would grace the stage of the human history for a little while. However, they too would ultimately crumble into the dust and from them would rise another empire, the Grecians. Led by Alexander the Great and others, that particular kingdom was mighty and strong and it lasted for some two centuries. But it too would also pass away with time and another would rise from the embers and this would be the empire in Rome. One by one, those empires did rise just as the God of heaven had said they would. And so it was that just as surely as God rules what may appear ordinary, He also rules in the features of kingdoms. In that scene in Acts the 8th chapter, we notice there an Ethiopian nobleman who had traveled such a far distance to worship, and it may have appeared so ordinary, a man riding in his chariot reading from what we would call the book of Isaiah. And yet, Philip was told to join yourself to the chariot and converse with this man. We well remember how successful that conversation was. Philip preached to him Jesus, Acts 8.35. Two verses later, this very man, in fact, desired to be baptized. And so it was that a man became a Christian that day. Was it accidental? By no means. Was it coincidental? Hardly. Here the God of heaven knew well about the character and heart of this nobleman. And he knew that here was a fertile piece of land where the God of heaven could plant seed. That man accepted the word of God that day and became a Christian. Jesus taught a parable in Matthew the 13th chapter. We often call it the parable of the soils. One was the wayside soil. Here we remember the Word of God, Luke 8, 11, as it was sown, it didn't really even bring forth much in that soil because the birds of the air simply took it away. There was, however, stony ground, and we notice that indeed that Word did germinate and it began to grow. However, we remember that under the persecution and difficulty of the heat of the day, it withered and died. That heart, you see, wasn't prepared to withstand the difficulty and the persecutions that would arise. Then we notice that there was yet another kind of soil. This one was encumbered with thorns. Again, the plant grew. But we notice so quickly that the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choked it out just like the thorns did. Finally, though, there was some fertile ground. Good soil in which the Word of God could find lodging and in which it could bring forth much good, some thirtyfold, some sixtyfold, some a hundredfold. 
we might reflect, then Saul had seemingly a very receptive heart on this early occasion in 1 Samuel 10 and 11. When all those signs came to pass, Saul, in fact, followed along with the message that Samuel had given him. What a noble person we see early in this stage in the book of 1 Samuel. As you can well appreciate, perhaps one final thought. From the little book of Philemon, although it is but one chapter, in it's the story of Onesimus, this runaway slave who had departed from his master Philemon. As they had dwelled in the city of Colossae, we find that this Onesimus had come in contact with Paul. Apparently his heart too was very receptive because he became a Christian. Paul, in fact, baptized him, introducing him into the kingdom of Christ. We do notice though in verse 15 of that little one-chapter book that this interesting wording is used by the Apostle Paul. He said, Perhaps he departed from thee for a season that thou might accept him back forever. It may be, you see, Philemon, that he left for a reason. Maybe there's a greater good to be seen in this because he was a slave and not a Christian when he was with you. But upon his leaving, he became introduced to Christ and he has become a, a brother to you now. Not just a slave, but a brother. Accept him back as a brother in Christ. I wonder tomorrow or Tuesday, the individuals that you and I meet and the events that happen in our life, Will they be orchestrated for the reason that someone may be brought to the greater glory of God? Could it be that someone that you and I encounter tomorrow, some circumstance in life may have a far greater worthiness of good? Maybe this lesson in 1 Samuel, if nothing else, helps us see that just as surely as God's in control of all things, that may very well be the case tomorrow. It should be exciting to those who are Christians, shouldn't it? to appreciate that you and I can serve as fellow laborers in the kingdom of God and no matter what those circumstances are, to be prepared with the word of the Lord upon our lips, using the talents and the skills God has given us to carry out the good work He has given us to do. This opening thought in 1 Samuel chapter 10 perhaps prompts us to consider another lesson also found in these chapters. As you can see, that particular lesson I've worded in the following way. The character of Saul. We've hinted at that a moment ago, but perhaps it's time to cast a richer spotlight on the character of this man. It does say a great deal, doesn't it? The people requested a king, and who did God select to be his first king? I believe if we at least reflect upon the character of this one, we will be greatly reminded of what God finds important and what he finds so encouraging amongst his people today. What kind of person would God want you or me to be? Maybe as we look at who He selected here, we could reflect on how we ought to be today. Back in chapter number 9, we learned a great deal about Saul, even on that occasion last week. We found, first of all, that physically he was very attractive. Remember that he stood head and shoulders above others. He was handsome. He was very comely. I suspect that many a young lady in Israel looked with fondness upon Saul, hoping that he would select her. However, I would suggest to each of us that much more about him is said than just his physical attractiveness. Look at his spiritual qualities. We find, first of all, he was exceedingly humble. He could be greatly agitated when he saw evil being done, 
Recall that in chapter 11, when he learned of what the people in Jabesh were facing, he became greatly angry. He, it agitated him enormously when he recognized that God's people were so greatly mistreated and threatened by these heathen Ammonites. The Spirit of God came upon him and he leaped into action. As you give some thought to all of those characteristics, perhaps one other thing. When he first met Samuel, Saul was very receptive to what Samuel had to say. When Saul invited him, or was, when he was invited to participate in that sacrificial meal in chapter number, number 9, he went, but he in fact behaved himself very appropriately. And he listened with great heed to what Samuel had to say. I would suggest that as we think about all of that, maybe it leads us to consider some of these thoughts. This was a man who, in addition to that, was very unpretentious. He seemingly was very humble. Recall that when the family of the Benjamites, the family of the Matri was taken, he was out taking care of the equipment. He deemed it more needful to take care of the things that belonged to others than to, in fact, be paraded amongst one that was so public. He was not one that wanted the glory. He was not one that desired the limelight. He was not one that had to be the center of attention, if you please. He just simply wanted to do what he could, laboring with the capabilities and talents he had been given. That was an impressive characteristic of him, wasn't it? Now we've noticed even in chapter number 10, at the time of his selection, he had to be gone and brought. And when he was then placed amongst the people, it was recognized his stature. It was recognized the kind of person that he was. As chapter number 11 closed, it was the people who then selected him by grateful appreciation to be their king, and there the whole matter was ratified. What might that indicate about the person that God selected? God wanted a person that was meek. God chose a person that was humble. God chose an individual who was not arrogant and prideful. And may we be so quick as to say that those are still qualities that are not favorites to the God of heaven. In Proverbs chapter 6, there are seven things listed there that God hates. Well, over half the list has to do with pride, self-exaltation, and arrogance. It is still something to be noted that God hates those things. He wants a person who is filled with humility of mind, Colossians 3 verse 12, an individual who appreciates that in his capability of serving, it must always be done with humility and never with arrogance. One of the most destructive things, it seems, that can occur with regard to an individual and with regard to the church is that matter of arrogance. Isn't it stated in Titus, the third chapter, about there an individual who has to be rejected because he not only is an heretic, but he is unreceptive to instruction. In fact, isn't that really one of the most dangerous things about arrogance? A person who is arrogant does not wish to be taught, is unwilling to listen to the suggestion of anyone else, and is not open to constructive criticism. All of us need constructive criticism from time to time to be reminded that there are others who know better than we, the others who are more experienced than we, and others who perhaps by virtue of a keener sense of proper interpretation have words that we need to hear 
and that we need to follow. At this stage in his life, Saul was that kind of man. Though he was one others could look to, he himself was open to the suggestion of God. Ultimately, that's the highest thing you and I need as well. Never to put ourselves above this book. Never to put ourselves above the instruction of the Christ. Never to put ourselves above the faithfulness of the Word of God. When we arrive at a position that we think we're above any of that, we ourselves are ready to fall. Is it not stated in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12, Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. We are setting ourselves up for immediate fall when we are not open to constructive criticism and the powerful words of wisdom from others. In Proverbs 4 verse 7 it reads, Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore with all thy getting get understanding and with all thy getting get wisdom. As you and I seek that wisdom, often we can find it in the instruction delivered from the mouths of others. How powerful needs to be our intent to hear with wisdom and to hear with one ear attuned to what God has had to say. The character of Saul points out this very important lesson to us. In Romans 12 verse 3, we are there reminded that none of us ought to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. As we give some thought then to humility, the lack of arrogance and pretentiousness, Across the biblical stage, we often see those who in fact were that kind of person and how thankful we are for them. But when we encounter those who weren't that way, we notice how often they made their mistakes and they were unwilling to be guided. It is with that in mind I would ask you to think about another lesson. The third one, as you can see on that slide, it also taken from the life of this man named Saul points us to the events of chapter number 11. We rehearsed it just a moment ago, and we saw on that occasion that when Saul learned and heard that what the folks of Jabesh were facing, that he leaped into action as the Spirit of God came upon him. He took that yoke of oxen, hewed it to pieces, and sent it, demanding response to both Saul and Samuel. It is with that in mind that we can perhaps note one final thing this evening. Saul did more than just intend. Oh, it's true that he had a heart that was broken for what the people of Jabesh were facing. It perhaps would have been appropriate on that occasion, in the mind of some at least, to have the intent that I wish things were better for those people. If only they would have been more righteous and faithful that maybe things will work out for them. Saul didn't respond quite in that way. His intentions were met with action. He took a yoke of oxen, he thrust it in pieces, and he sent it to the parts of Israel. Perhaps that reminds us that still isn't it true today that intentions, though those by themselves, have their place. In the realm of God, they must be met with action, mustn't they? As you and I consider the teachings of the New Testament, and even the lessons of the Old Testament as well, we notice that when things took place that were right, actions were involved. Maybe the 11th chapter of Hebrews drives that point home as lovingly and as beautifully as any other. For there the honor roll of faith is presented and one by one these names are listed. Abel, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, Isaac, Jacob, Samuel and a whole host of others. 
One of the beautiful things about each and every one of them, though, is that by faith, each one accomplished something. By faith, Noah builded. By faith, we remember that, in fact, Abel cries even yet to this day from the ground. And in every instance, each one's faith prompted him or her to act upon what the Word of God had declared. Here we find the same thing happened for Saul. He leaped into action, and in that way he defended the city of Jabesh. He, as well as the people of God, acting on behalf of God. Today, may you and I appreciate that same kind of thing. Let us not be individuals merely of intent, but individuals who allow those intentions to manifest themselves in actions. Whether it be by visiting the sick, whether it be by picking up the phone and calling those who are in dire circumstances, those whose faith perhaps has been weakened, those whose circumstances in health are challenging. We notice in Matthew 25 there is a statement made that as the Lord gave us this picture of the judgment, this interesting scene is revealed. There were some who in fact were highly complimented because they fed the hungry, they gave drink to the thirsty, they visited those that were in prison. They tended to the needs of those that were sick. They took care of those who were in need. One interesting thought about that is they then ask, When saw we thee in these circumstances? And then the Lord responded, Inasmuch as ye did it unto the one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. In each of those instances, their intentions resulted in actions, and the manifestation was a very prompting thing which God took note of, and their reward was at the judgment. Isn't that a loving thing to consider? May it be a prompting guide to your life and mine as we too allow the truths of Scripture to emanate to action in our life and to behave as we should toward the commandments of God. These three lessons allow us to, in fact, make this final observation. Saul has now been selected as the first king, not only by God, but the people have accepted him as well. And as he begins his reign as king, we will, of course, beginning next Sunday evening, be interested to see, does he continue with these same qualities that have been so useful and so positive so far? The lessons we've learned tonight have been these. We saw, first of all, that things may well happen for a reason and that we should have our eyes open to the possibilities for God to use us in His service. Secondly, we noticed about the greatness to be seen in the reality of Saul's character and how that many of those qualities must be our own. And finally, we noticed the intentions that Saul had and how that they resulted in action and how that God used him in that way to great good and to great accomplishment. This very night, as we each analyze ourselves, are Saul's characteristics those which you and I have? Are you open to God's teaching and receptive in heart to what He has said? Or to this point in your life, have you been a rebellious one? Have you, in fact, thumbed your nose at what God has had to say by demand? And at this point, are you still lost? It might be that there is one or more in the sound of my voice tonight who needs to make a public response to the gospel call of invitation. If that is the need of your life, dear friend, don't delay. None of us know what tomorrow may bring. Don't you want to have the Lord on your side tomorrow? Surely as you give thought to that, you will feel it the need to respond publicly tonight if that is the need in your life. 
If you've never rendered obedience to the gospel, believe in Jesus with all your heart. Repent of the sins in your life and confess His name as the Son of God and be baptized for the remission of sins. If we could help you do that, we'd be honored to witness your obedience to the gospel call. If you have become a Christian, but at this moment tonight you are not faithful, come back to your first love. All make mistakes, but yours may be of a sufficient nature that you need to appreciate the, the worthwhile to come to Him in a public way and beseech the prayers of others. Why not do that this very night? If we could, in fact, pray with you and for you, we would, in fact, consider it an honor and consider it a privilege. If you, could, if you need to come tonight in a public way, this song of encouragement has been selected, and we invite you to come even now while together we stand and while we sing.